The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we're joined by Erin Doherty. Erin Doherty has been fascinated by everything associated with the sky above us his entire life, with both flying and learning being at the forefront of his interests. It makes sense then that once he found himself in aviation, he was drawn to instructing and began working with Harv's Air. Erin enjoys learning and brings his enthusiasm for knowledge to his teaching, both in the airplane and on the ground. For him, the teaching aspect of flight training is almost as much fun as the flying itself, and his work through pilottraining.ca and Harv's Air has guided many aviators as they make their journey towards the heavens above. In fact, both Holding Shorts producer Cameron and I have been instructed by Aaron through pilottraining.ca without ever having been in the same classroom. Without any further ado, I could not be more excited and honored to have one of the most recognizable ground school instructors in Canada joining me today. Welcome Aaron Doherty. Well, hello. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, it's it's great to be here with you today. It's great to have you join us, and it's truly like having Canadian aviation royalty make the time for us. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Just I'm pretty much somebody who has had the good fortune of doing two of the things that I really enjoy most, and that is teaching and flying. I, I like the teaching just about as much as I like the flying and they've been such a good fit for me. Well, we will jump right on in then. How did you get your start in aviation? You know, that that's a question that's really kind of hard to answer because I know some people, when you ask them, how did you get started in aviation? They'll have like a specific point or a specific thing that they vividly remember that got them into aviation big time. But myself, I really don't have that sort of a moment. Um, I just know, like, ever since I was young, I've always loved the sky. You know, and it didn't matter what it was with the sky, um, you know, whether it was like moonlight and stars, whether it was thunder and lightning, um, you know, bugs, birds, of course, airplanes. You know, the, the sky has always been something that I've been very, very interested in. And I guess over time, you know, as I continued to watch airplanes, my dad in particular, you know, took a note of how much I liked the sky, how much I liked airplanes. And I remember him as a child, he would take us out to the airport and we would hang on to the chain link fence and look at the airplanes as they came and went. And I think that's really where it probably started was at that point, you know, just outside of that airport, hanging onto that chain link fence and kind of watching the airplanes as they came and went with dad and my other brothers and sisters. And I think for a lot of people that find themselves wanting to get into aviation, you do have that moment of being on one side of the chain link fence at an airport, looking at aviation happening over there and thinking to yourself, man, how do I get to be part of everything that's going on over there as opposed to being on this side of the fence looking on right yeah yeah you're kind of like boy wouldn't that be neat to be in that airplane and then what does the earth look like from that airplane uh, yeah I, I would really agree with that <laughs> 
Now, more specifically, how did you, once you got into aviation, how did that process happen for you? Well, it took me some time to actually get to the point where I was able to take flight lessons. Um, I had another career before I did this. And um, as I was evaluating things, I was looking at it and I'm like, well, this is a really good career. I could continue on with this, but I've always loved airplanes. And I wonder if there's still some potential in that. And I remember looking ahead at that point in my life, which as I said, was about 20 years ago now. And I kind of tried to look ahead and I was like, well, imagine yourself, Aaron, in 20, 25 years, if you didn't at least try, you'd probably be looking back, kicking yourself saying, why didn't you at least try? So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll finish up with this career that I'm at right now, which was great. And I would go back to that if I ever had to, but I kind of packed it up and started my flight training and uh, came out to Harv's Air. And uh, that's kind of where that flight training phase of my uh, flying started. So you did your flight training with Harv's Air and then found yourself working there later on? Yes, exactly. Um, I sort of had that idea in my mind as I was thinking of starting the training of, well, you know, maybe I could become an instructor. I, I do know that I like teaching and there's flying as well. So I, I should maybe look at doing my instructor rating. Um, I'll admit, I really hadn't told that many people that that was sort of what I was thinking. And uh, I'll never forget my um, commercial pre-flight. And uh, it went miserably, like just horribly. Um, and I was kind of like, ah, oh, just down. And it's like, boy, that was just horrible. Maybe I should rethink this. And I was going out with my instructor for some of the fix-up flights. And I'll never forget um, Al Otten, you know, um, we never forget our instructors and I'll just never forget him looking over at me and I guess he could kind of tell I was down and he kind of looked at me and he's like, so Mr. Doherty, when are you starting your instructor rating? And when am I going to start my instructor rating? And he's like, yes, I think you would make a fine instructor. And I'm like, well, Al, I just had the most awful pre-flight of any pre-flight and you saw it you were there yesterday it was horrible and he was like nope you will make a fine instructor let's get this fixed and let's get this done so you know that was one of those pushes for sure that i i remember and i'm like i needed that push at that point in time i can think of different moments within my own flight training where i have found myself very discouraged having had what i thought was the worst flight of any flight ever in a training context <laughs> and turning to an instructor or a mentor and just, I, I mean, I'm not afraid to admit calling them crying, saying I've made a terrible mistake. Why am I doing this? And having someone to sort of talk you down and say, well, you're upset because you care. And the fact mm -hmm. that you care means you're still in the game. So have a day to just sort of be mad and then right. get right back into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, great that you've had those those moments as well because they are they're so important and I'm sure so many of us feel like that I mean as pilots there's so many things that we can do wrong and sometimes we're very hard on ourselves you know because so many of us are goal-driven and we're striving for perfection we're probably never going to be perfect but we can work towards it and it's great when 
things don't look so great and you have somebody to do that for you. Mm -hmm. Now, as you said, really for better or for worse, we remember our instructors. What qualities do you think there are in the best instructors? Well, for sure you have to enjoy what it is that you're teaching. Um, you know, if you, if you don't really enjoy what you're teaching, students catch up on that pretty quick. You know, they, they realize very fast that, well, this instructor is maybe here just to put in time or, you know, that they're just doing it because it's a job. But if you really have enthusiasm towards what you're doing, your students will catch that and that will help kindle their interest further as well. So that's definitely one of the biggest qualities. Um, two, making sure that as an instructor, you're like a professional athlete perhaps, because you're always trying to make yourself better as well. Um, studying, listening to your students' questions, um, figuring it out, striving for a deep understanding of what it is that you're teaching. Not just, you know, okay, I think I know this, but do I really understand this? And then being able to communicate that to the students. That's challenging. It's important that you're a good communicator as well. And I think there is that element with instructors and sometimes you see this with flight instruction um, where you're taught very much what you need to know for the exam. It's not necessarily the how and the why something works one way or another. It's very much, well, it works this way because it does. And do we really want to get caught in the minutia of that? Or do we want to move on to the next thing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, having that understanding will allow you to better explain exactly what it is that the student is going to experience. And sometimes there, yeah, maybe some people can get caught in the technicalities, but I think that's again where being a good communicator is important because mm -hmm. you can keep it from getting bogged down too much and still keep it fun and interesting without maybe getting too bogged down in the absolute details or technicalities. So after completing your commercial license, you went on to do an instructor rating with Harv Zare. What was it like to finally see yourself as an instructor? Um, the first little bit, of course, I'm sure like anybody in a new job, you're a little bit nervous. Um, you know, so boy, I've actually got a student and this student is counting on me to keep themselves from danger. Um, you know, that's probably one of the first things that, that went through my mind is like, wow, this is a lot of responsibility. Um, I'm responsible for taking this person from very limited knowledge and then taking them through an aircraft that's hurtling at sometimes almost 200 kilometers an hour through the air and helping them make good decisions, safe decisions and become a skillful enough pilot that they won't hurt themselves. I think that's one of the first things that, that I thought is, wow, this is an amazing responsibility. Mm -hmm. and, and it is. And I think uh, to my understanding with most instructors is that maybe the first five to 10 hours, you're feeling pretty confident and then it will sort of hit you. Oh my goodness, I have the responsibility to myself for my own safety 
to the student to make sure that I train them to be a good, competent, safe, well-rounded pilot. And that there is that wave of realization of the weight of responsibility that you as an instructor have. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's still a lot of fun, but, you know, definitely, as I mentioned, those were some of my first thoughts that, wow, this is real. This is very responsible. And then, okay, um, I got to be responsible, but still do my best to keep it fun at the same time. Now, how did the virtual ground school of pilottraining.ca begin? Well, that was um, fairly early in my instructing career. I guess I'd been doing it for about a year at this point in time. And um, Adam Penner, our operations manager here at Harv's Air, uh, one of the things that he noticed, he was like, well, students really like doing ground with you, Aaron. You know, he said, it's like they'll, they'll flock to sign up for bookings for ground school sessions with you. And then too, teaching the classroom ground school, it's like they all want to go and, and see your ground school. So he's like, you know, how about we start taping you? I'm like, well, start taping me. That might make me feel a little bit uncomfortable because now I, you know, got a camera on me. And he's like, I, I think it'll work. I think it'll be a really good idea. And then, you know, we'll post them online with the, the material that we've been creating for pilottraining.ca, which existed only as PowerPoints at that point in time. And um, he did. The uh, quality was, I think, 240 pixels by 360 pixels or something like that. And it was physical tape, you know. So um, now, of course, it's all digital and everything. And we started doing that. And that was very popular. The students who were online at that point in time were like, wow, we've got something we can see now. Um, so that's really kind of where that part started. Now, I know King schools in the U.S. also have video components for different training courses that they have. But what was it like to be something to be part of something that was truly still so novel for aviation instruction? Boy, I, uh, you know, I've never really thought about that. And I don't think I really ever thought about that at that time either. Um, again, it was just something that was like, well, I like teaching. Students are liking this. So let's, let's keep doing this. I, I don't think I really quite thought about that, that it was new or novel or anything like that. I was just trying to do what I've done with a camera watching. <laughs> That's, yeah, I guess as long as it's something that you have been doing up until then, the fact that it's being recorded and going to be used later as a training material, that's not that much different really right. in terms of your actual execution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Now, what is it like to be the instructor and in many ways, the face of pilottraining.ca? Ah, uh, well, wow, that's a, that's a good question. Um, sometimes uh, it, is, it is a bit different, uh, as you say. Often people that I don't know will come up and they'll say, thanks so much, kind of like yourself. Uh, and when I got that email from you and you're like, thank you so much. You've, you've done so much to help me in my career. And uh, as I told you, I, I enjoy teaching just about as much as I like flying. And it's so neat when that happens. Um, as an instructor, that's probably one of the greatest feelings in the world. That and maybe sending a student solo, having them pass their flight test. Okay, anyways, there's a couple of others as well. Um, but yeah, you, you never forget your instructors and it is kind of neat sometimes when I think how the generations that are following, uh, I'm having an impact on that. 
not just myself, but um, you know, our entire team as well here at pilottraining.ca. Um, a lot of students sometimes don't see the amount of effort and time that not just myself is being put in, but our whole team of producers and writers and editors. And um, I always do my best like, to, to tell them too, like I had this student who came up and said, thank you, you know, and, and you're a big part of that. I've always tried to, to convince them, you know, come on, come on to the front, come, come say hi on the camera. But producers and editors and writers, they're kind of shy that way. So, you know, they, they don't really want to step in front of the camera. Now, how often do you get recognized? In aviation scenarios, I'll admit a fair amount. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, okay, well, maybe I'll tell you one of the weirdest places that had ever happened. Um, I couldn't believe it. I was in Los Angeles and um, I was there with a number of students because we do this epic long cross country um, with the college that I'm affiliated with. And we ended up in Los Angeles. And um, I'll never forget, it was breakfast and the guys were still kind of sleeping. So I was like, yeah, I'll go pick up breakfast because I'm a morning person. And I go to a Culver's in Los Angeles and someone walks up to me and is like, Aaron, hey, Aaron, how are you? And I turn around and I'm like, hi, uh, who, who are you? I've been studying your ground school from British Columbia. And it's just so great. Thank you so much for everything you've done for me. I'm just about at my flight test level and I can't believe I'm seeing you in Los Angeles. And yeah, so it does happen sometimes seemingly randomly as well. I can imagine it must be confusing for other people who are with you that maybe don't understand sort of the impact that the pilottraining.ca videos have had that you're just being recognized. Yeah, it, it doesn't happen too much outside of the aviation, um, you know, science sort of settings, but yeah, once in a while it does. And as you touched on earlier, you're a, you have been a part of so many different pilots' journeys throughout aviation. I, I've joked before that most Canadian pilots have taken a Harv's Air course or have shared a Harv's Air course with a friend of theirs. And it is such a, to me, classic part of aviation training to have to take a Harv's Air course at some point. So I guess it's just to me, the idea of the, the exact quantity, trying to qualify how many people that actually is that have taken those courses, it must be kind of overwhelming to think about in terms of how many people you have essentially taught ground school to. Yeah, here, here at Harv's, um, that's something that we mention quite frequently is is just that, you know, that kind of propagation of a new generation and how each and every instructor is, is going to have that impact on their students. And, you know, just to remember that each name that you put in a logbook is just like that little cliche of the ripples in the pond, right? You know, the name that you put in that logbook is going to touch other people in the aviation industry. And that's just going to move on from there as well. So it is pretty neat to think that sometimes, yes. Now we touched on the fact that it's not just you that goes into the making of these videos, but there's a whole production team. What is the production process like for any given video? <laughs> well, um, okay, so, so you do a podcast, so I'm sure you know a little bit about how much work goes into uh, a session. 
um, so many people just see the finished product, right? And uh, yeah, that entire team, like it, it starts out with, um, it's hard to say exactly where it starts, but somebody goes and writes an exam and, you know, maybe they've got some questions. Then there's the study guides that Transport Canada has out, right? So, okay, all right, let's create a course for this. So then we have a team of people who put that together. Um, from there, of course, then typically what happens is all of these items get thrown onto a list and um, over time, items of more intensity or items that need to be done quicker rise to the top of that list. So typically I'll review that list and I'll look at, okay, what needs to be done soon here. And then from there, uh, start looking through the slides themselves. Um, and then typically the day after, we'll head to the studio with uh, my producer. Uh, mornings, I'm a morning person. Um, so typically the day of a taping, we, we tape two times a week. Um, so typically the morning of a taping, I'm up at about 4.30 a.m. You know, I'll do a quick review of the material one last time. And from there, we'll go to the studio and usually start taping a session at about uh, 7 a.m. And we'll go to usually about 9, 9.30 and then finish up. And from there, of course, the editors and producer take over and they have to do the lion's share of the work, I think. <laughs> you know, editing is something else. Uh, I really don't know that side very much. Uh, it's mostly the pre-production work and then, of course, the actual in front of the camera bit that, that mostly is my work. Now, what happens when you have changes in the content of the study guides? How often are the courses overall maybe revamped to be more current? Transport Canada does it too much. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, it's good because aviation is evolving. Technologies are evolving. Um, our understanding of how things work is constantly evolving. So it's really good that um, we're able to change things and change the content of the exams as the aviation industry evolves itself. So typically what will happen in a case like that is um, we'll typically see it through some sort of a notification like the AIM will change or you said the study guide will change. Then frequently we'll take a look at uh, the material and we'll ask ourselves, well, does this need a major overhaul like a complete retape of an entire section? Or is it something where you know we can add some blurbs to alert students that something new is up now? Um, and we're constantly doing that. Uh, I know when we first started this way back in 2006, sometimes you kind of thought, oh, we'll work on it and then it'll be kind of done and then we can put it aside for a while. But uh, that's not the case. We're constantly modifying the material and uh, on a weekly basis even, as, as I've just described. I would say I have, was taking the IFR course recently and there were videos of some of the meteorology section that I think were original videos because clouds aren't really going to change all that much, we hope. And right. then <laughs> some content was maybe sort of mid 2010s and then uh, items that were even more recent related to just sort of uh, early 2021 with new IFR regulations. The course itself may have several different tapings over a period of time, but the material itself is always relevant. <laughs> the clouds one? We just changed. We just <laughs> so, changed clouds. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> I did that one last week, so you could rewatch it if you want. <laughs> Good to know. I, I need to get all the, the hot goss of the 2021 clouds. <laughs> Didn't you hear of the cottonous granulus clouds? Anyways. <laughs> I I know that there's pyro clouds, pyrocumulus yeah. clouds, but I think yeah. that's the only major cloud development I'm up to date on. No, there weren't major changes, but uh, yeah, you were right. That was one of the videos we looked at and we're like, you know, this one's a little bit blurry. Um, let's let's refresh it with some 4K taping here. Now, was there a particular lesson as an instructor that you found challenging more so than others when it you first started creating the videos? Um, well, yeah, I guess a, a bit. Um, Air law, uh, those ones are, are, are a little more challenging, um, partly because regulations, you mostly have to read them, of course. Um, so I think probably sometimes when, when you think of ones that are a little more challenging than others, air law would be up there simply because of the, the type of material that it, that it is. Now, do you have, I guess, on the other hand, a favorite lesson? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I like all of flying, but as I told you, I absolutely love the sky. So meteorology is definitely one of my favorites. So that's why the clouds were revamped. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was near the bottom of the list, but I moved to, no, we, we didn't do that. <laughs> it was based on personal preference only. <laughs> right, right. No, 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 no. Our, our producer had a lot to say with that. This is really blurry. Now, what advice would you have for someone studying for a Transport Canada exam? Uh, you know, earlier we mentioned uh, looking for understanding, not just memorizing. Uh, when you're learning, during the initial phases of learning, of course, memorizing is, is very important. But you really start to see somebody blossom as a student or as an instructor when you can tell that they actually understand something and can explain it back to someone. They've connected all of those random dots that they've memorized. And now because they have a deep understanding, they can start to draw connections apart from that lesson itself. And it actually usually results in them getting better scores on their exam as well. So that's one reason why um, on pilottraining.ca, we really do strive to also talk about how it works and why it works that way. We've just found that the exam results have gotten so much better when we do that with students. It does lead to slightly longer material, but the results are just, they go through the roof. And I, I would agree when you can understand the how and the why, not just remember an answer for an exam or for I guess a conversation or ground brief that you'll have later on, when you can start to understand it or explain it yourself, that is really when the learning happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now, sort of, I guess, as a joke in terms of, in my own experience, no one ever really being able to understand it. You seem like you would be the person that might be able to explain what on earth is Sun's true bearing? <laughs> Sun's true bearing. Well, that's not on the exam anymore. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so yeah, but no, the sun's true bearing was just a fascinating way of, uh, I mean, once you get far up in the north, there's no way for the compass to be reliable. So 
if you can use the sun, knowing the time and your longitude, you can actually figure out, you know, what the heading of, of that, of what the sun is, you know, based on your longitude and the time. So incredibly valuable way of doing it. And one thing I actually did start to study a little bit too, not quite exactly related to sun's true bearing, but is like using an astral compass and, you know, just how prior to our GPSs and technology that we have, people were able to like stare out of the turret of a B-17 or a B-24 or a, whatever it may be, a liberator, um, and figure out where they were and where they were going by shooting a bunch of stars. And it's amazing to think that polar exploration, knowing what the sun's true bearing was, that you could point your airplane at the sun and then get going in the right direction was very important at one time. GPS though has pretty much killed most of that. No, it's just, it's one of those things where I've, I've always been told if you see come up on an exam, just accept, take the loss and move on. No one understands <laughs> it. So I thought like, who, you know, who'd be the, the authority who might actually know what this is. Yeah, well, if you look, you'll see like the AIM, like it no longer contains those tables anymore. There was once like these huge big lists of tables and everything that you would have to use. Um, and now you don't really need to do it. But it is kind of fun to think about how it was done at one time. Now, what does the future hold for pilottraining.ca? Wow, wow. Looking into the future is sometimes a, a challenging thing. Um, you do your best, but uh, sometimes there are a little bit of guesses. Um, maybe I'll tell you a little bit about what we're working on right now. You remember how I said, well, we start out 240 by 360. Over time, um, we've gotten better and better. Um, we're up to 4K now. We actually just built a dedicated studio. Um, up until early this winter, Believe it or not, those videos were being done either in a basement or in a garage. And uh, now we've actually got a dedicated studio. So the lighting is pretty good. The video is pretty clear. Um, and then two, what we're capable of doing now um, with this studio, I don't know, the magic the producers do back there is unbelievable on that fancy board that's back there. But uh, a lot of you know more video and of course uh, animations can get in there. Our GoPros are very busy um, in terms of actual courses that we're developing, um, one on mountain flying right now and float flying. So those will probably take us a, a couple of months to, to get online and working. Um, just in terms of more some of the grassroots stuff, um, we're doing a lot more of course through Skype and Zoom one-on-one uh, -on -one uh, sessions, you know, that, that students can have. And those are really quite popular as well, because if a student has specific questions, they can, of course, you know, uh, just set up a time and then we can go over some of those questions with them. So those are some of the more immediate tasks that we're working on right now. Now, are there other types of training or ground schools that you would like to see made available in a virtual format? Good question. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, I think, I mean, so many of us have been through this COVID pandemic, and it really has been showing us, you know, the capabilities of online training. So definitely, for sure, 
you'd want to be careful though too, definitely not to lose that that one-on-one -on -one personal touch for sure. Um, I think there is a lot to be said sometimes when you're actually there with somebody. Um, I mean, think of in the airplane itself, right? Um, sure, sometimes this is really a really good format here, but there's sometimes cues in terms of the nonverbal expression that can still be missed. So yeah, we're still still slowly working through that process of figuring out uh, what we can do. And as I said, COVID has definitely allowed us to see how much more we are capable of. I remarked it to friends in passing, but when everything moved virtually um, last year, a lot of different universities and post-secondary groups found it a challenge to move to virtual training. Whereas I found for most aviation students, it was a pretty seamless transition that mm -hmm. we already had uh, a complete infrastructure of online ground schools already developed so that when the pandemic arrived, people were able to pretty easily transition onto a virtual ground school. Yes, you do miss the one-on-one -on -one and having a classroom of people to also ask questions, but as a whole, I think aviation studying in Canada was not as impacted as it could have been the same way that we saw with other training. Yeah, that's that's a, an interesting interesting observation because yeah, like the ground school part, uh, many students maybe if they had to stop flying, most certainly they still were able to you know work through their studying online. So a lot of people still you know just okay, I'm going to focus on my exam now, and uh, yeah, I'd say that that's that's a really good observation. Now, Harvard Air has a large and diverse fleet with different flying disciplines available, including tailwheel, aerobatics, floats, skis, and upset recovery training. What importance do you personally place on diversified training for pilots? A lot. Um, uh, this is a great question, Laura. Um, sometimes I think students limit themselves when, you know, they go to train and they're like, well, this airplane is the cheapest, so I'm only going to train in this airplane, and I'm going to do my entire commercial license in this airplane. They're really, really limiting themselves and the, the knowledge and the experience that they're going to gain. Every airplane has its own personality, and um, particularly when you move into different types of aircraft, uh, even something as simple as you know, say the difference between a warrior and a 172, um, even to a degree like a 152 and a 172, and, and then a tail dragger. Every time you move into a different type of airplane, you're, you're going to learn a new personality, a new way of flying. Um, and that's just going to deepen your skills. And it'll also deepen your knowledge of aviation and aircraft in general. Most people, when they fly an airplane and they realize that it's doing something different compared to the airplane that they've spent most of their time in, they'll start to ask, well, why does this airplane do that? You know, and, and there's usually some sort of an underlying aerodynamic or engineering principle. So you're deepening your knowledge at the same time that you're deepening your skills. So I really strongly encourage students to allow yourselves that experience to fly multiple types of aircraft. 
you're only going to become better for it. And I know we've spoken about this before on our show, but the idea that flight training can sometimes be so siloed to tailwheel or glider that you can just end up knowing your niche inside and out, but not necessarily knowing how it plays into aviation as a whole or how it would influence another part of your flying. So it's always, I think, is a good idea to try and have as much experience uh, in a variety of different contexts as possible. Uh, I know for myself, flying a Cessna 172 in most of my flight training, and then privately flying a Cherokee, it was a bit of a transition to go from a high wing to a low wing, um, manual flaps as opposed to electric, a lot of little different subtle changes or even where the brakes were. So it's yeah. always good to know the differences and to be willing to try new things if you're able to do so. Right. Don't you just love the way the flaps go down on those manual Cherokees? So easy. Brakes <laughs> though, what a wonky design. If they don't have the toe brakes. <laughs> you know the flaps are down exactly. And then the brakes on a Cherokee and older. Yeah, those that can make that can be for some fun. Yeah, I have such a I, I sort of say it's such a Cessna um default that I'm coming into lane. I'm like, okay, my heels are on the floor. Well, it makes no difference. I have no toe brakes in this Cherokee. <laughs> I'm probably not going to accidentally catch us. I need to. <laughs> this little weird maneuver that feels somehow much less safe than if I just had toe brakes. What do you mean my instructor can't bail me out if I have to stop suddenly? <laughs> yeah, it's just a wonky one. I just, I, I, I love flying the Cherokee, but yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. Or even yeah. in a high wing aircraft, I never thought anything of it. But then mm -hmm. sitting in a low wing aircraft over the spar, I just felt so much more secure. And I had never felt unsafe or insecure in the high wing, but it's just a completely different feeling of safety based just where I am sitting in relation to the wings. Right, right, right. And, and all those people who don't go apply different types, they're going to miss all those even small things like that, you know, just those little differences that are sometimes even going to, you know, just ignite a little bit of, say, your, your passion again. If, if, say, maybe sometimes, you know, students might get a little bit in a doldrum and you know, oh, I've met a bit of plateau here. Sometimes hopping into a different airplane and learning the intricacies of that different airplane can, oh, okay, yeah, this is great. And then you come at the other airplane you're flying before with a, a fresh appreciation again. So something else that can, can be done by flying different aircraft types at times. Now, what is left on your flying bucket list? Oh, wow. Um, Let's think for a second here. Uh, you know, um, one thing I think would be really neat, um, kind of almost simple, um, the Pacific Northwest, uh, just really beautiful area. Um, I've often thought it'd be kind of neat to like hop in an airplane that's a little bit slower, you know, flies a little bit lower and, uh, you know, do something like uh, some island hopping in the Pacific Northwest, you know, kind of in through... Vancouver and Victoria and then just south of there down through Seattle and everything like that. I've always thought that'd be something really neat to do. Um, can I have two? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Absolutely, you can have two. <laughs> um, another one would be like uh, one of my favorite airplanes is a P-47. Um, being able to fly a P-47, that'd be kind of cool. Be kind of a I don't know if that happened. There's so few of them now, but uh, I've often thought that'd be something neat to do as well. And you're also quite into skydiving. 
<laughs> skydiving uh yeah i've done a jump one jump <laughs> so does that qualify um yeah skydiving uh, that was not too long ago that i did that either um so so yeah that's definitely again broadening your uh aviation experiences and what would it really be like to jump out of this thing and uh the parachute Oh, when that opens and it's so quiet and just the ability to control that parachute and land on a spot just a few feet by a few feet, just unbelievable. So your inclusion of a skydiving video in the Harv's Air content uh, gives the sense that you are a, a regular at <laughs> skydiving jump spots. Well, did you notice there was an instructor? <laughs> it doesn't matter how many hours you have. There's always something to be learned by going with an instructor. Exactly. Yes, exactly. It wasn't solo for the record. <laughs> now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Um, for this one, maybe I'll go with, uh, kind of I'll go with almost two people. Uh, they both have the same last name, so we'll call that one. Um, Richard L. Collins. Um, both of them have passed away in the in the last few years. Um, Richard L. Collins. Um, he was a well-known aviation writer um, and teacher. And then uh, Michael Collins, the um, astronaut who was the the commander of uh, Apollo 11. Again, I've always really appreciated him. And and both of them. I've always appreciated because you could tell that they they had a, a passion for aviation, what they were doing, but they were also very good communicators. Um, they were very good at communicating what it was like for each and every flight that they did, and then passing that knowledge on to others. And, and Richard Collins did a really good job of that as, as a teacher as well. He would fly his aircraft just all over the United States and Canada um, through many different types of weather, um, many different locations, and how he was able to teach the practical aspects of flying through those flights was just something that I still find very, very inspiring. Now, Michael Collins, I remember growing up Ben being a big fan of reading about the Apollo program and the Mercury program, and I always remember thinking, how sad I felt for Michael Collins that he made it all the way to the moon and then Neil and Buzz just went on without him and he was left to orbit. But there was something about the fact that I believe he later described himself as the, the loneliest person in the universe at one point because when he was on the dark side of the moon and the furthest human away from other humans, he just had all these moments with himself and that even though he did not ultimately set foot on the moon, it was still a whole adventure on its in its own right that was totally unique to him so i yeah. I've, that's what i think of with michael collins was the the loneliest man in the world at one point yeah and i think at one point too uh he also said something like um you know even though i was alone i wasn't completely lonely because as you said there were still things that he had to had to do and work on and uh, I've always thought that statement, too, was, was just something really, really neat. I'm mindful, as you're saying that, of Alan B. Shepard, who mm -hmm. went to space. And, of course, all the men ask him afterwards, what was it like as the first one? And 
he says like I was kind of just busy I had to get on with <laughs> the task I, I didn't really have this moment of awe of sort of taking it all in I I had a job to do while I was up there it wasn't about just going to go see the sites and everyone's sort of disappointed in that but rather you're still there you still have a job and in some ways that was probably helpful as opposed to just sort of having to sit and wait until you were coming out on the other side of the moon. Yeah, I've had a student, uh, some some students, not just a student, who've gone solo and kind of came back and like, did I actually just go solo? I was so busy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of a neat, neat, uh, neat way to put it with Alan B. Shepard as well. Now, what are some activities you enjoy outside of aviation? Uh, quite, it's quite a, quite an assortment. Um, uh, astronomy is one of them. Um, hiking, kayaking, um, bird watching. Notice how in many of these, again, there's that sky theme going on, right? Um, gardening, I guess that's not quite sky, although I'm enjoying the sky when I'm out there working in the garden. And then uh, reading as well. Um, those are some of the things that I really enjoy doing when I'm not uh, doing something like flying a plane. Now, do you have a favorite local hiking spot? Well, Manitoba is really a glorious location for hiking. Um, where we are based, Steinbach, if you drive just an hour and a half to the east, you're into the Canadian Shield, which is very, very rugged terrain. Um, lots and lots and lots of like clear, pristine lakes that sometimes maybe only a couple people visit a year. Um, lots and lots of, of course, you know, just pine and forest. Uh, then out towards the west in Manitoba, we have a Riding Mountain National Park. Um, although in terms of somebody who lives in BC or Alberta, they'd probably laugh at our mountain in Manitoba. <laughs> it's only 2,600 feet high. <laughs> But there's a lot of really nice hiking in there. And then another area called the Pembina Valley in Manitoba, just a beautiful area, again, to um, go hiking. The river has carved a deep, deep, deep channel through the prairie landscape. And there's just beautiful valleys and side streams and stuff in that area. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your aviation career? Well, um, Boy, there's so many again. Um, I mean, we were just talking about soloing for sure. Um, maybe uh, for sure, like my, my parents, the ride that I took my parents up in uh, the 172. Um, as I told you at the beginning, uh, my dad was one of the great encouragers um, as I was working through my aviation training. So to finally get to take him up, that was an incredible experience. Um, he always really enjoyed anything related to flying. But the funny thing about my dad is he didn't like flying in the airplane itself. So to, to convince him to get into the airplane and to go for a ride with me, it took a little bit of doing, but that was something really special when he went up with me. Um, maybe if I could have one more. Um, and, and, and I wasn't directly flying when this happened, but um, two years ago, um, I described how we do do some long cross countries and we go all the way from Manitoba and then 
um, I go with a number of students all the way to Los Angeles and we go through Phoenix into the Grand Canyon. And on one of these trips, two years, actually maybe it was three years ago now because I got to put COVID into effect. And yeah, it was, it was, it was three years ago. But we're in Phoenix and myself and this group of students, we're in a minivan and we're driving down this road in Phoenix, you know, and all of a sudden one of the guys just starts breaking out, like you were talking about singing, and he breaks out into the song, country roads, take me home. You know, I'm, I'm not a great singer, but the windows were rolled down on this minivan. He started and very quickly, everybody else chimed in and we're just singing at the top of our lungs for all we're worth in the middle of downtown Phoenix. Of course, all the cars are kind of looking at us and yeah, yeah, a little bit crazy. But after we'd finished it, one of the students, you know, kind of looked over at me and he was like, you know, Aaron, we're on our way back home, but I just want to say thanks for helping us get here. And I kind of think that that's sort of what pilottraining.ca is, is, is doing. You know, it's, it's opening up that world for students where an airplane can take me to this new place that I can experience. And I just have this openness and ability to sing. I'm so happy to be here. I mean, you on your solo. And we're helping students get there. And, and I think that was a very special memory once those components were all tied together like that. I certainly don't know how it could come together more in a just in a better way than that, having the students, the experience of being at the destination for that trip, everyone just bonded through the experience of having gone through this trip together, just singing their hearts out. That would just be such a highlight of a trip, even if it's not an actual flying part of it. Yeah, yeah, flying let us get there. And um, that's pretty neat when you think that an airplane can do that. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find Harv's Air on social media? Well, for sure. I mean, you know, students know where to find us. Um, we do do a really good job of preparing you for your exams and, um, you know, hopefully preparing you for just more than those exams, but, you know, your aviation career, your aviation journey, whatever that may be. And that's our ultimate goal for each and every person who comes across our website. We will be sure to have those links in the episode description for our listeners. Aaron Doherty, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, once again, thanks for having me, Laura. It's, it's been a pleasure being here. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Thank you.